You are listening to the Prepared Warrior Podcast, where law enforcement and military trainers discuss cutting-edge training, tactics, and technology. Here is your host, John Wilson. You are listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Prepared Warrior. I'm John Wilson. Our guest for this episode is Damian Halforty. I like to start every episode with a quote. This one is from General Charles de Gaulle. You have to be fast on your feet and adaptive, or else a strategy is useless. Very special guest on the program, Damien Halforty. He has over 20 years practical experience in tactical training, firearms, and equipment. And he has been a part of over 700 security operations in over 60 different countries. Uh, Damien is featured in Masters of the Blade, a book dedicated to edged weapon instructors around the world. And he is a carjacking countermeasures instructor and program designer, executive protection specialist and instructor, handgun instructor, tactical edged weapon instructor, ASP tactical baton instructor, and certified Gracie Jiu-Jitsu military and law enforcement combatives instructor, also director of 4-0 Tactical. Um, Thanks so much for coming on the program, Damien. Thanks for having me. Uh, So many... uh, kind of um, expertise you have, uh, it's, it's almost hard to, to rattle off half of them. But uh, how did you first get into the world of uh, tactical training? I uh, started firearm training for my dear father when I was probably five or six years old. He took me out and we started shooting shotgun. It was my first little experience, got my shoulder knocked over and all that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Uh, five-year-old, six-year-old. And um, my, my dad was in the military, so he was a career military officer. Um, grew up and lived in South Africa for up until I was around 33, 34, somewhere around there, uh, in Johannesburg. Um, so went through, grew up, my dad on weekends, we would go out and we would shoot and, and everything around it was military based. I was always shooting on a military base, um, whether it was handguns, rifles, the old, uh, FN, Belgian FN, uh, was the first rifle that I shot, um, so there was a lot of that ingrained by the time I was hitting 12, 13 already. I, I knew a lot about weapons. He was, I, you know, my dad wasn't giving me comics. He was giving me gun magazines. So um, <laughs> there was a little difference in, in what I was getting. And I loved it. I, I, I thought it was the greatest thing. So um, I got very into it, identified weapons very quickly. Um, and um, so at the age of 18, Randolph jumped into the military service, national service that we all had to do. Um, at the time, my father was commanding the VIP protection unit, uh, and this was in the Air Force. And um, so I just naturally went, hey, that's what I want to do. Uh, because all they would do is they would do protection at nighttime, or sometimes during the day, looking after all the generals and people that would fly into the country and so on, related, military-related and um, during the day, they would have access to a nice range, and they would go and shoot, and they would have literally unlimited ammunition. So it, it, it was the greatest thing. I thought, man, this is just absolutely the best thing in sliced cheese, you know. So um, I, I managed to get myself wangled my way in there. I didn't get any favors from my father. Um, so people would go, okay, well, hang on, you were the, you know, the colonel's son. I, I, he, he really actually made it a lot harder than other people. So I, I really had to go beyond to get into it, to do all those things. Uh, once I did that, then it was fine. Um, but so, firearms instructor at the age of 18. Um, this was in the military. We had a, a practical pistol um, shooting program, and um, 
and then also VIP protection. So that's what we did. We went walked around in suits and did the whole bodyguard thing. But uh, you know, as an 18-year-old, you can imagine pfft, we didn't really know a whole lot. You know, we, we thought we did, and you know, we were high speed with shooting and running up and down and doing all that kind of stuff. But in hindsight, now, I mean, we were 18 years old. So it. Um, so I did my national service, left, and then shortly after, um, I was involved in a bit of security work, trying to find my way around as, as to what I wanted to do. But the um, the gun side was you know, heavily embedded in me already. And um, so I then I, I decided, okay, I was going to join the police, join the police reserve, and did that for, I think, seven, eight years, maybe even nine. I'd have to check dates, but something around that time. And, um, and in the exact same sort of amount of time, I'd start up a small security business and um, started doing executive protection and, and built up an executive protection company. So same sort of parallel time, the, uh, the police work would have been weekends. You would maybe do 10 hours, 15, 20 hours a weekend, and you would go and assist. So I went from normal, the sort of uniform or working at the station to uh, endangered species protection unit. Did that for about six months. And that was just basically being posted at an airport, having a lookout for people that were trying to smuggle, uh, whether it was a tortoise, you know, live animals, right. snakes, you name it. You know, anything that was exotic, the guy's trying to get out of the country. Um, and then later on, I met a guy who um, I just thought they were just doing a great amount of work. Uh, it's called, it was called at the time the Child Protection Unit, and it turned into what was called the uh, Child Protection Family Violence Unit. And what these guys would do is his particular role um, was to go and trace suspects. So in other words, somebody would commit a crime, they would investigate it, find out where that guy was, and then they would hand this docket over, the file over to a team of three or four guys who would then go out and find the guy. Uh, and that's what I, I that's what I ended up doing, and I loved it. It was it was great. So. Um, sort of parallel time training wise I was always looking for more training so I was always trying to do whatever I could to enhance my skills it was just for me it was a hundred percent about surviving longer so anytime I could find I was researching magazines you name it so I'd see like the ASB tactical battle and you know South Africa never knew what that was I saw it and I was like man we've got to have this we didn't we had some of the guys had tonfer that was it nothing else um, so I jumped on it and became the first instructor in South Africa to go, and I went across to Belgium and got certified mm-hmm. over there. And I mean, sure, it's a, I think it was a two-day course, three-day course, I can't remember exactly how many days it was. It's a small course, but it was a big deal. Um, flew halfway around the world to do that, and um, ended up meeting some interesting guys out in Belgium, um, some American guys, U.S. Special Forces guys that were also doing similar training. Uh, ended up doing some war maneuvers with these guys. It just the, the training sort of just sort of snowballed around what we were doing. Ended up doing a lot of house penetration movements, SWAT team training. Um, got back to SA, carried on with my policing, carried on with protection company. Um, within a probably a two to three year period of that, I went off and I uh, sorted out the best. What one of the things that I wanted to do was find the best possible trainers that I could. So whoever, I was like, okay, if the, if the field is executive protection, who's the best? I, I didn't want somebody around the corner that could show me some stuff. I wanted the best that there is. So at the time, and I believe it still very much is, is a company called Executive Security International, okay. uh, ESI, based out of Aspen, and um, you know, run by a guy called Bob Dugan. And they ran the most comprehensive at the time. It was 900 hours of study time of executive protection. 
So you think about that. So they, they're based on how many hours you sit and study. So it's not just like, oh, I did a week's course, I did two or, you know, four weeks or whatever. It, this is actual study time where you're sitting with manuals and it's brain power time. And, and that was, to me, I'd never seen that before. So I was like, that was awesome. So I went and did that program. Um, <clears throat> got to know Bob Dugan well, met some other guys there at the same time, started building the protection company. So I started networking. Some of the guys were going, hey, we want to come out to South Africa. We want to come out to East Africa, all these different places. Can you help? I was like, absolutely. So the training continued at the same time. So in the same thing, I was going, hey, and, I, and I'd seen the way executive security had also done their training where they were hiring the very best in those specific fields in executive protection. So electronic countermeasures um, or uh, terrorism. One of the best guys in the world at the time who had passed away uh, was an ex-CIA guy. Um, and he was the, one of their head instructors. So it was like, man, who, who are you actually learning from? The best guys in the world. So I was like, man, okay, this is, this is the place. And I, I kept that for myself, and I started to apply exactly the same principle. So I got back and I was like, hey, I need to run better training in South Africa. And I started to sort out the best instructors in firearm training from the South African Special Forces. So um, I had a link through my dad, through the military. I got a couple of introductions and met with a couple of guys from Special Forces, one guy in particular. And uh, we started running firearm training. So pretty much every weekend we would have a, uh, a two-day program, whether it was handgun, rifle, shotgun, um, <clears throat> house movements, uh, vehicle operations, you name it, that's what we would do on weekends. So I would just spend literally every weekend training, doing different, and learning from the best guys in South Africa, who are very, you know, obviously high-end experience. And um, at the same time I was running in this business, so I was making some money out of it, which was just amazing. Um, so I was getting this, the best training, was selfishly, it was actually for me. But... Um, and at the same time, you know, I was making out a great product. And, um, yeah, and same with the, the exact protection program we, we then developed was I, I would have a couple of American guys that were actually instructors for ESI would come out and we would run a program. And it would be like a two, three-week um, executive sort of modeled loosely on the ESI program, but for South African situations. And, um, yeah, we ended up doing that. And same thing, I, I started learning about handwriting analysis and stalker analysis from some of the best guys out there, and it was just amazing. I then sought out guys from the intelligence agency in world in South Africa to run, um, give me or run me, a, put a course together on terrorism or intelligence gathering. Or, you know, so I started using the brains that we had that we had developed so well in South Africa, but on a private capacity. And um, I got to learn, and I got to learn a lot. So it's... Um, and I didn't get to pay for it, which was fantastic. So it's, um, yeah, it was it was a good time for me. Um, it's amazing. Around the same time, Bob Dugan, because of the carjacking rates in South Africa, um, he had said, hey, man, you know, they had a vehicle program. And he was like, can you do something, put something together on carjacking? I said, man, we have so much information, no problem. So he says, well, write a book. I was like, okay. So he commissioned me to write a book. At the time, he paid me, I think it was $2,000 or something. But he paid me up front. He was like, yeah, here's the money. Write a book. It took me six months or something to do it. And I put together this carjacking countermeasures book for him for ESI, and they still use it as part of their training manual. So um, that was the, the start of that. Um, and the same is, is like I, I looked at different tools, different weapons. So I went pistol, handgun, rifle, shotgun, um, all the tools we had. And because of 
close proximity. I wanted to go further. I wanted to have the ASP baton. And then I wanted to do something around Blade because it was so prevalent, but nobody could teach it. Nobody. in 25 years ago, it was like South Africa had nothing in terms of Blade. Nobody could teach it. So it was like, man, okay, there was guys maybe down that knew it from a criminal point of view, but nobody formally teaching a system. And, um, and I started doing Kali or a Screamer at the time when I was around 22, 23, something around there. So, and that was my start to, to Filipino martial arts. So Edge Weapon. So I'd started, I'd um, tried a couple of different martial arts. One of them was, my first one was Aikido. I'd watched the Steven Seagal movie, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, went, hey, man, that's, you know, that stuff rocks. Um, and uh, at the same time, I, it was, I think it was around the same time I'd started this, I'd found this Screamer class. And this guy was teaching this uh, Eskrima and uh, just stick work and a little bit of knife, but mainly stick. They didn't know too much on the knife side. And um, I've been doing the, the Aikido since I was, I think, 19. And then I got into the police. So I've been doing it for about two years, two and a half years. I was in the police, tried to arrest a guy using my fancy Aikido techniques. And um, he beat the shit out of me. I mean, literally, he just smacked me around like, I, you know, and I was just like, I didn't understand. Like, hang on, why is my wrist lock not working the way it should? Why is this guy not flying around, you know, like they do in the in class? <laughs> uh, so it was a wake-up call. Um, and I think within a day or two of that, I went out and joined a boxing gym and um, started boxing. I um, gave up the Aikido. I was like, well, no, that's just not going to happen for me. It's got it. I think it has value somewhere, but you've got to know where to use that. And... Um, started boxing and um same with the the Kali I uh, always screamer I like the stick work but the what they were presenting at the time was baseline um so I and I and also I'd seen some adverts for these guys called uh, Dog Brothers uh, Dog Brothers martial arts and and Kali and yeah. um I just wanted to try to it just made sense if you can fight with it properly and you can do it in real time well then it's going to work so okay you know I should try that at some point never got the opportunity to do that until Man, I moved out to New Zealand when I was around 34, 33. My brother was living in Redondo Beach in California. And by some chance, I had seen the address of Dog Brothers. Their postal address and my brother's postal address were almost identical. So Mark Danny of Dog Brothers, like, literally lived a block away from my brother. So I would go out to L.A. and I would visit my brother and um, realize that Mark Danny lived there. And around the corner, hooked up with him and started training with him. And, uh, and I got to know Mark Denny pretty well. So in terms of stick fighting, stick work, um, if you want to learn how to take a stick and fight with it effectively, Dog Brothers. There's no yeah. doubt in my mind that that is the system to learn. It's, and I, I've learned, I am a big proponent of Kitty Tosha Kali. I learned that for a good several years as well. Um, Buck Bucken as well. Um, the other knife system, which is really effective, which is really solid, was a mock. Uh, Tom Sotis, um, really solid, man. If you want to learn how to use a blade effectively and you want to get away from the fancy martial arts side, whereas Mark Denny calls it the martial arts and crafts, um, yeah, a mock knife system. They Each, each of, I think, of the Filipino systems have their own bladed you know, versions, and they're all pretty damn effective. I mean, you know, if, if you know what you you're understanding what it is that you're looking at. Uh, I think some get very fancy and I think a lot of techniques are wasted because it's just too, it's great for movies. Having worked in a movie environment now, um, mm-hmm. it's great for movies, 
you know, it looks fantastic. In reality, I don't think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, the the edge stuff. I I by no means look at myself and go, oh man, I I I'm high end. I know stuff. I man, the more I learn, the more I want to stay away from it. It's kind of one of those weird, you know. I don't want to get into that life inverted commas fight. You know. Having said that, I I've I've carried blades on executive protection and palmed blades in my hand thinking okay someone's about to jump me and would there some would there be something that I would want other than that in my hand and probably not so I I think I'm confident in myself that I know how to use it but I I don't see myself in any way as being a master or a high-end practitioner or any of these these labels that people use nowadays I just man there's so many factors that can go right and wrong that you know what? If I can walk away and I'm I'm alive and I'm not I haven't been injured, that's a great day. And if that means me running like hell, that's also good. <laughs> I, I get to go home, sit on my couch, smoke a cigar, um, and because I'm in I'm in shape and I'm fit, I could run. Fantastic. I I don't want to find out that the the guy next to me is a fraction of a second faster on his left hook, or his his blade work is slightly you know different, so you know he manages to get it through. Or his partner that I haven't seen standing around the corners coming up behind me. Um, I don't want to find that stuff out, man. You know, yeah. it's no thanks. Yeah, no, I, a lot of people. It sounds like the the more you learn about, um, you know, the dangers of, uh, you know, a knife and how quickly if someone is, you know, you you think they're far away from you and you can pull out uh, some other weapon, um, it yeah. it can happen so fast and and you might as well just keep your distance. It's it's incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. every time I have guys that come to me for private training, and I I try and do the sparring thing where we, you know, it's a, it's a mock fight um, mm-hmm. where you are in timing, and I guarantee there somebody always get through. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what level I'm on. I'm like, well, you know, surely, surely I should be able to stop everything, right? And it's <laughs> like, yeah, nah. <laughs> So um, yeah, that's and it, I I still I love blades. Mm-hmm. I I train it often, um, keeps my mind fresh. Um, yeah, it's and I'm always fascinated to see some of the the high end proponents of blade work that are getting a lot of notoriety and fame, and they are the best. I man, I shake my head. I must be honest. I'm like man, um, mm-hmm. and some of the best guys out there on most certainly don't have that. So um, yeah. It's a, it's a very hard one. You mentioned uh, working in uh, entertainment uh, productions. So, like, can you say what uh, productions you've been a part of, and, and what exactly? Uh, what? How does your expertise lend to to these uh, movies and or TV shows, whatever you've been a part of? Sure. So, I, I was teaching the Kali, the Kitty Tusha Kali, and I had a guy come to me on and off for some private training, and um, he, he he was very jacked. He, he he was onto it, and it's kind of different from the normal guy that would come in. And then later on, I found out he was a, um, a high-end uh, stunt choreographer, and his clients would include somebody like The Rock or Jason Statham. Okay. And um, so amazing, the guy built up a, a solid reputation and, and work ethic of note. And you know, slowly but surely, he was taking my stuff and going, "Hey, this is awesome." So, and then that word kind of spread to a couple of other guys. And um, so other stunt performers started coming to me for training. Same with pistol. I started teaching them about a pistol movement. Because in the movies, you see a lot of guys having a clue. They're just moving with weapons. They're just like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't happen. 
And um, so they were like, yeah, let's train up some guys. And that went on for probably maybe a year. And then one of the guys um, got me onto Ash Evil Dead. Oh, cool. Um, Evil Dead, yep. Mm-hmm. So I started helping out a little bit on some of them and then actually ended up being in one of them as a military guy running around shooting some stuff. And um, and then the same guy then asked me, hey, can I come down to uh, – it was all filmed in Wellington. Um, they were starting a new movie, a big one, big budget one. Uh, can I come down and train up the stunt crew? And I said, sure. So I was down for a couple of days, trained up their guys. A week later, they said, hey, come back for another two days. So I went back down, did it again. Um, then didn't hear from them for probably four weeks. And I was like, damn, okay. You know, I hope to get a bit more, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Move on. A lot going on. And they called me up and said, listen, we've got a production. It's called Ghost in the Shell, Scarlett Johansson. Um, and she is, uh, we need you, or we'd like to have you on for five months. Uh, full time. Wow. Um, yeah, it went from, hey, do a bit of training to five yeah. months. Now, I, I'd never done that stuff before, so I was really green. I, I knew what I knew with military stuff, but I was like, okay, fought for, for, I think, a good two weeks, and then went, sure, let's do it, um, tried it out. And I so I would fly down to Wellington, an hour's flight, and do the week uh, of filming, helping out on set, training, etc. And then, um, so yeah, ended up doing that for five months. Um, and yeah, so I ended up training Scarlett, all the rest of the crew, stunt crew, great bunch of guys and girls. Um, yeah, it was a good time. Time. Do you ever watch, uh, have, have you seen the movies that you've trained people on and, and you're, you're looking closely to see if they're handling things properly? Yeah, I, I always, it's it's standard now. I'm like, what are you doing with your hand? What's that finger doing? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's kind of my, uh, it's almost a pet peeve in a way where you're going, what are you, you know, how's that? What is that vest? What are you doing with that? You know, it's, uh, but it's, it's great. You know, it's just fine tuning really. But you find that kind of work, um, uh, you enjoy enjoy doing that as, as yeah, far as it's, you're... it's it's very different to the the regime of dealing with military police etc. It's a very different world. It's, mm-hmm. it's somebody once said to me, um, and it's the truest words is tactical world, which is like military police think yeah. Hollywood is sexy, and the guys in Hollywood think the military world and tactical is sexy. So it's a um, it's a crossover. And that's a difference, different world. I mean, filmmaking is very different than reality. So, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Well, now you get admired by people from both sides. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's a great experience. You know, life experience, awesome. Yeah. So you've worked uh, in so many different countries and, and settings. Is there any um, any kind of uh, interesting, um, unique uh, place that that you find things? Uh, you know, training styles uh, completely different, or, or kind of. I, I imagine you you're you're always learning different things from different places, from different people. So, um, what what kind of uh, unique experiences would you say you've had that uh, maybe most people haven't? Um, fortunate enough to be around people like French high end French tactical teams. They have a very different way of, of delivering their um, their training. Very hardcore, very professional, um, and some real sneaky te- techniques, especially with CQB. Um, and I love that. That was awesome stuff I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture of different policemen or military guys around the world is so different. Right. Uh, there is a there's obviously a common denominator, but they, the approach. I mean, 
the way South Africans approach something versus Americans or um, you know French, Russians, etc. It's it's so different. Um, still with the same common denominator, but mindset is very different. It's a um, a lot of people are hardcore in their own right, um, but they just yeah, there's just different types of hardcore, which is interesting. You know, they they get the job done in a similar way, but it's um. Yeah, very different styles, I think, uh, of hardcoreness. I don't know if even that's a term. Right, yeah. yeah. It is now. So. <laughs> yeah, we go. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, I enjoyed chatting to as many different – and finding out what their background – like, how did they get there? Yeah. Like, what were they doing when they were kids that made them become an operator? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, to me, is fascinating. I mean, I think one of the common denominators that I see probably 80% of the time – is rough upbringing. Okay. So they ended up, you know, a little bit of a troublemaker, something went wrong, maybe even having to go to prison, something like that. <clears throat> Something's defining that makes them, the mindset when they're young is hard already. Um, and that gets developed on. It's not everybody, but I think a lot, you know, there's a good solid majority of people are like that. Um, where it's not necessarily criminal, but just a little rough. You know, they're doing stuff that normal kids just wouldn't do mm-hmm. uh, and, and i see that a lot when i speak to people right and that might just make them feel more prepared for uh you know whatever could happen it's an anchor. you know like when you're talking nlp work i think it's a set anchor that it gives you in life mm-hmm. i think a lot of operators go through like a selection process and one of the things they talk about in selection is um the hardest part of their military training would be the selection so whether it's Hell Week or any of those things the Americans talk about or the U.S. talk about on the SAS side or um, you name it, it it's the, the selection process is insanely hard, but it creates an anchor for them. So when you are facing a tough time and you look back and say, hang on, I got through that. I can get through this now. Right. And I think that's it's the same with as a kid. You're growing up. If you get horrendously, you get beaten up a lot, like stepfather, you know, rough drinking, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you can deal with it and you can handle it. You then get faced as an 18-year-old on a selection course or a 20-year-old where the guys want to rough you up, beat you up a bit, and you think to yourself, well, this ain't nothing in comparison to what my stepfather used to do. <laughs> right. Um, so go right ahead, man. You know. Um, and some guys, unfortunately or fortunately, have been through that. You know, Some really rough stuff that you're just like, wow, it's, that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the mindset that you're dealing with. So yeah. And and you're often um, you know training people. Do you think um, it can be uh, people who have a really stubborn mindset when it comes to to training? Maybe they might feel like they know everything if they're if they're you know really hardcore already involved in um, you know tactical work. Yes, some yes and no. I mean, you, you always mm-hmm. get the guys. There's always some that go, oh, no ways. Um, you know, I, I know it, this is the way we do it, you know, that works. If that does, works for you, great. Take what you can, you know, take what's useful, discard the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely other guys that come in all the time and just go, man, just teach me, whatever. 100% open. So I, I just did a course recently, about three weeks ago, where I would probably say 98% of the guys were 100% open to it. You know, a little bit of resistance, but 100% like, let's learn this, let's do this. Yeah. And everybody had their own style or system, but um, yeah, the, and they, they were all, you know, and law enforcement guys, 
but great great bunch of guys. The ego was kind of left behind. But invariably on courses, you always find there's there's a couple of guys that the egos just won't won't allow them to say no. You know that might have sucked in the past. You know or whatever whatever it is that I had is probably not that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can happen. I mean, you don't know. It's learn. There's more and more stuff out there that's coming out. That's just solid stuff. And you know, so. So uh, is there any kind of uh, training concepts uh, that you've been thinking about recently? Um, you mentioned, um, you know, before uh, the preemptive behavior response. Uh, do you want to get into yes. that? This is something that it was, a, it was a term that I was trying to figure out um, of, of what to call it. Preemptive behavioral response. Um, and what it is, is preparing yourself prior or or prior to an incident happening, but almost having the insight to seeing it coming just before it happens. So, I, I, and I'm hoping I'm trying to get this across in, a, in the best possible way. For mm-hmm. instance, you're in your vehicle carjacking-wise, and you know that this is a carjacking hotspot, i.e. vehicles get carjacked in a particular place all the time. So what do you do when you're driving up to, say, this particular in- intersection? Okay, so you make sure your doors are locked. You make sure that, you know what, my weapon is, you know, I can access my weapon. It's it's good to go. I've got one up. Uh, my safety belt, I've taken my safety belt off. Um, I'm now super aware. These are all things that are preemptive behavioral response to me. So you, you're thinking about stuff prior to an event happening. And so the question is, can we walk around in everyday life and do that? And I, and I think the vast degree we can, depending on your awareness level. And how lazy we you are. That's what it boils down to. Because, yeah, of course, we want to rather just sit and listen to the music. But it's the same with, well, yeah, of course, we don't want to go to the gym and train and get ourselves up to shape. You know, we want to sit on the couch because our body goes, no, well, let's rather do that. It's easier. Let's put our, you know, we're driving a vehicle. Well, let's just put that into auto. And I don't have to think about stuff. And that's wonderful, but that's essentially human nature. And it's just lazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we're super aware, well, yeah. People go, well, hang on, you know, you're, you're, you're too over the top. You're going to be freaked out. You're like, well, I don't think so. I, I looked a lot of that in, in South Africa with carjacking where I applied that a lot and taught it a lot. And, um, and the more you put that in place, the easier it becomes and the, the, the easier it is just to do it on a daily basis. So instead of going, oh, today I really have to look out my window. I've got to look left, I've got to look right, I've got to check, I've got to see around. Well, if you do that every day and it becomes part and partial of your day, well, Okay, it's just normal. Mm-hmm. It's the same as learning how to drive. The first time you get behind the wheel, it's super freaked out. You're looking all over the show, all these, you know, the, the gear stick, the steering wheel, your feet, what you're going to do. And as you progress six months in, you don't think about it anymore. Same application. So you're already starting to apply, like you're coming up to a stop sign, you're applying the brakes already, you're not even thinking about it. And that's what I'm trying to achieve with being more preemptive. So in other words, seeing stuff just prior to it happening because if the more time you have the better your chances of survival and that's to me it's just time i want to create time just making it routine that you're always uh, being aware correct. Yeah. Yep, correct so you create that routine and you just keep adding on to it mm-hmm. so we're not walking around like oh man i'm super paranoid you know it's like nah you don't have to be it's driving a car man that's it's normal well, that's a, a really, uh, you know, great uh, piece of wisdom. I think uh, 
to leave our listeners with. I'd like to thank you, uh, Damien, so much for uh, coming on the program. Awesome. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. This has been the Prepared Warrior Podcast. For more info on our guests or other episodes, check out thepreparedwarrior.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the Prepared Warrior Podcast, email j-o-n at thepreparedwarrior.com.